Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Class teacher Doug Brady actually finished the study of the book of Daniel today, although he's going to give us one more week as he wraps it all up. For the past 55 weeks, we have carefully and fully studied the prophecies in the book of Daniel. It has been a real treat and an eye-opening time. Next week, Doug will talk about Daniel, the man, and his closeness to God. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Our class is constantly growing as people come to search out the words in the Holy Scriptures, and we invite you to visit our class if you're in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's grab a seat. Open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 12. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Last Sunday, I intended to talk very slowly, to go through things in a very deliberate manner, so that we could get a good understanding of everything I was saying. And I got so excited, I just took off. And a number of people have asked, could we go back over some of those things? And I've decided, yeah, that's what we need to do. So we're going to spend a great deal of time on that. I want to tell you, although we will study the last verse in Daniel this Sunday, we, this will not be the last lesson on Daniel. We're going to spend next week on a lesson on Daniel the man and Daniel his book. And before we go on to our study of Elijah. So let's start out this way. Last Sunday, we looked at some rather mystifying uh, pronouncements made by the agent Gabriel. Very few people have ever talked about them or understood them. It's like, well, we kind of got worn out near the end of the book of Daniel and we just move on. If you look at study Bibles, they tend to gloss over verses 11 and 12 and those numbers of 1290 and 1335. But there are really two intriguing subjects that I think we ought to revisit. The first uh, is the great divide that would overtake the human race at the end of time. We're going to look at that. But before we start, let's pray. Father, I pray that this time that we are together will be your time. And that you will speak to our hearts and you will give us understanding so that we can act on the truth. Help us to know what it is that Gabriel said to Daniel. Help us to understand the times in which we are living and how close we are to your return. Now, of course, we pray, Father, that you will return quickly. But if not, help us to be the kind of people who will stand up and say that's not right, to say that's sin, to say that we will oppose it with every breath in our body. To do that, Father, help us to understand exactly what you are saying to us 
what is important and what is not. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So, in Daniel 12, verse 10, he wrote this. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wickedly will understand. But those who have insight will understand. That purged, purified, and refined uh, happens to be what is going on in a person that comes to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. The purged is something that the person does to themselves. It's a choice they make. It's reflexive. But the next two words are basically passive verbs. In other words, the action is being done on the one who's being purged. God is doing those next two things, making him white, refining and testing them. And of course, this is speaking about a time during the last half of the tribulation. How many years is that? How many months? How many days? 1260. That is the great tribulation. The time it's going to be the worst. And if you're living there and you're a believer, you will be refined if you don't die. Because they will be killing believers right and left. And we need to be prepared for that. Now, I want you to see, it says the wicked will act wickedly because they don't understand. These people, the vast majority of the people around in the earth in that day, they can't see or understand the truth. And the truth, of course, is Jesus. They can't see or understand him, and they can't therefore act upon what he's instructed them, and they will be enslaved by sin. And there will be spiritual slaves and physical slave slavery going on in that day. That's number one. Now, Gabriel also says there will be those who have insight with understanding. That is, they can see the truth, they come to see it, and they act on it. Now, this is very, very important, and we need to understand this. When you come to know, for example... The keys to the gospel. And let's talk about the first three keys. Number one, that God loves you. Number two, that you are a sinner and that separated you from God. And number three, that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. Those three things. Knowing them is not enough. Does Satan know those things? Does all of his demonic horde know those things? They all do. They know it's true. You see, it's not enough to just know those things. You have to act on the truth. You have to receive Jesus as your Savior. Uh, what does it say in John 1.12? But as many as received him, to them gave the right to become children of God, even those who believed on his name. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, I will come into him and fellowship with him. But it's the act of accepting the life preserver before you can be saved. You have to act on that truth. Knowing the truth alone is insufficient. That's why he uses this term understanding here. They see the truth and they act upon it. Now, this will create a great divide during the great tribulation. And there will be a great number of people who understand the gospel and act on it and become true believers, many of whom are killed. It talks about it in Revelation 7, 9 through 14. We looked at that last, last Sunday to see uncounted numbers who come to know the Lord. 
but there will be even more who reject the gospel message and move far away from God. And as a result, wickedness will occur in our world unlike any time before except maybe in the time of Noah. And you know that Jesus said right before the coming of the Son of Man, it'll be just like in the days of Noah. That's in uh, Matthew 24, 37 through 39. I want you to consider something else. In Revelation 9, verse 18 through 21, it says this, A third of mankind was killed by these plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. This is the demonic beings who are being sent out by allowing to be sent up by God. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, now notice, they're understanding these plagues, did not repent of the work of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and wood, which can never see or hear nor walk, And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their immoralities or their thefts. What is going on here? God is bringing tremendous judgment on these people who are so wicked. But those who are alive have a chance to repent. And what do they do? Not me. I'm not repenting. Who's doing all this to you? Well, we know who's doing it, but I'm still not repenting. I'll prove that to you in a minute when we get to Revelation chapter 6. They know. They know who it is. And yet, now, some of these wicked people will survive the wrath of God, and they will live through the tribulation. Some of those will be Jewish people. Does anybody know how, what amount of the Jewish population will make it through? Not 144,000, but a third. A third. You can find that in Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, where it says, And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined. There will also be Gentiles who make it through. In Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations, not just the Jews, all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you by the foundation of the world. And then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now just as a byproduct of that, does God know which side is preferable, the right or the left? I I think he does. Now we need to understand that of all the people who are inhabiting this world, and there may be nine billion by that time, a large number will be killed by the judgments of God. There will be a large number of those who become believers who will be killed by Satan and those who are following him. And does anybody know what the method of death that they will most likely use? Cutting off their heads. 
Oh, have we heard of any cultic, Satan-inspired group that kills people by cutting off their heads? Yeah, Islam, the enemy of God. Now, you move on, there will be some people who are non-believers who will make it through the tribulation. God will separate them, and those are the ones He's going to say is accursed, and He will send them to a place, I just call it Hades Sheol. Hades is the Greek word, Sheol is the Hebrew word, it's the place of the departed dead. We'll talk about that again in a minute. There will be others, though, both Jew and Gentile, who will be true believers, who will make it through, and they will come through in the same way they are, into the Millennial Kingdom. Why? Well... In the same way, after the last, uh, how many judgments have we had of the entire world? We've only had one. What was that? The flood. What was one of the things God told Noah and his family to do after they left the ark? Repopulate. It was the only commandment that God has ever given man that's been completely obeyed, if you think about it. It's the only one. Now... When the millennial kingdom comes, there's going to need to be repopulation. And so those who make it through, who are believers, will be given that task. You will not be involved in that task. The second subject that we talked about, maybe spent more time on, is the establishment of an interval. An interval of time between the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the end of that period and the start of the millennial kingdom. Now, I have to, uh, you know, I've been taught prophecy all my life. Uh, My mother, when Dr. Jeffers wrote a book on prophecy, he dedicated it to her because she taught him too. And I learned, but I've studied other people and their prophecies, whether it's Clarence Larkin or the people from Dallas Theological Seminary. Over and over, I I read this, uh, you know, Arnold Fruchtenbaugh, Other than Arnold, they never really talk about this interval. And I'm not exactly sure why, except maybe they don't understand. It's the same reason in all these study. I have maybe, Julie would tell you, 20 or 30 study Bibles on the desk right above my computer where I can pull them down and look at each one, and they rarely tell you anything about this interval. You look at all the prophecy charts or timelines. They don't tell you anything about the interval. We need to come to see this interval. There is an interval. Daniel, you say Daniel's the only place that tells us about this. Yeah. Daniel's the only place that tells you that the tribulation is going to be seven years. Now, there are other places that tell you the last part is three and a half years. But there's no other place other than Daniel. You know, how much of the prophecy of Daniel has been fulfilled shows the exacting reliability this man had. And you know, you think about it. Is Daniel telling you this vision? No. Gabriel. Who is Gabriel? He stands in the presence of God. He has access to the book of truth. And he came and relates these things to Daniel. You're getting it directly from God in these visions. That dream that came to Nebuchadnezzar didn't come from Daniel. Daniel had to go to God to find out what it was. And then when he, God told him, it was confirmed by Nebuchadnezzar. Ooh, that's my dream, exactly. Now, as we look at this, this interval involves two periods, if you understand it correctly. One period 
is for 30 days, and the other period is for 45 days. Now, how do you get that? I want you to kind of understand this chart thing. In chapter 8, it talks about the 2,300 days and nights. That was 2,300 days and nights of what? That was when the temple was going to be reopened for sacrifices. Now, then there's another important date or time frame, the 1260 days. That's the last half, the three and a half years of the final tribulation. And that would mean that probably the temple would be built during that 220 days. So that's seven years showed in days, whether it's seven years or 2,520 days. That's that period. The sacrifices start at the start of that 1,040 days, but then something happens. Do you remember what happens? The Antichrist comes in, and what does he do? He comes in and establishes the abomination of desolation. He stops the sacrifice. He makes everybody take the mark, and that is the indication of the halfway point. Now, you have this total new time period that Daniel is talking about of 1,335 days. The question is, when does it stop? Or when does it start? Does it start in the middle? Or does it stop at the end? If it stops at the end, then we've got this excess period of 75 days before the middle of the tribulation. Is that what it does? Or does it start in the middle and extend 75 days past? Now you see, so which is it? Well, when you have a time period, what do you want to know? When does it start or when does it end? But if you don't know when it started and you knew when it ended, then that would tell you when it started. Most people got that, Don, but that's okay. Look at Daniel 12, 11 through 13. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Number one, that verse says both of those events, the regular sacrifices abolished and the abomination of desolation set up, they happen at exactly the same time. Not any time difference in them. This verse indicates the same time. And when does, so when does this time period start? It starts right there in the middle and extends 75 days past the end of the tribulation. So you're saying, Doug, that there is an interval of time between the end of the tribulation and the start of the millennial kingdom, the thousand year millennial kingdom. Yes, I am. That's what I believe the scripture teaches. Why? then would there be a 75-day interval? And why 75 days? We're going to answer those questions again today. Number one is there has, there's things that have to happen before the millennial starts, but they can't happen before the tribulation is over. What is the event that ends the tribulation period? Jesus coming back to earth with the heavenly army... And I'm going to be there riding on a white horse. 
You're going to be there if you're a believer riding on a... You say, I don't know how to ride. You will know how to ride. And uh, those horses ride for you, I understand. But be that as it may, that's the end. So what are these events that can't happen until after the tribulation? Number one, we're going to go through them uh, one by one so that you can see them. I, last week tried to put them in the group of 30 and then the group of 45. We're not going to do that this week. I can't tell you for sure that's the way that is. So these are the events that occur in the 75 days, 30 plus 45. Now, for some of you who didn't take new math, it's really very simple. It was 1290, that's an extra 30 days. 1335, that's an extra 75 days. But 30 from 75 leaves 40. 30 and 45 is a total of 75. Now, have I confused you or do you got it? I'm hoping you got it. Number one, Jesus is going to deal with the Antichrist and the false prophet. Can he do that before? No. It's when he comes back. Now, what we saw last time, what we saw last time is this. We saw that what happens is Jesus comes back and he kills both of those individuals on his return. He doesn't just kill them. He kills the whole army. And they're calling the birds to come eat them. But you know what he's going to do after he kills them? He's going to raise them from the dead. They're going to be the first fruits of the second resurrection. The second resurrection is the resurrection of unbelievers. Most every unbeliever will be resurrected right at the time of the white throne judgment when all unbelievers are judged, but not these two. They're going to be resurrected first. And just like Jesus was the first fruits of the first resurrection, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be the first fruits of the second resurrection. Jesus will resurrect them, and immediately what will he do? He will throw them into the lake of fire alive. The lake of fire, they get to spend a thousand years there together, those two, before anybody else joins them. How much fun. But if you know anything about the Antichrist, you would say, how deserving. How deserving. So, let me read very quickly passages that support what I just told you. Starts out in Revelation 9, 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's Jesus. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, will be following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. Then that lawlessness will be revealed, who the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And then Revelation 19, 20, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, and the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. That's the first event. The second event is going to be the binding and imprisonment of Satan. Now some say, wait a second, why are you just putting him in prison? Throw him in the lake of fire too, he deserves it. Well, you're right. He does deserve it. And those of us who want us to be short-sighted would do that too. But God has a purpose for Satan. Now, I want you to think about this. 
everything that Satan has done has been to fulfill the purpose of God. Does Satan want to do it? No, but he can't help it. Well, what possible purpose could God have for Satan? Well, I want you to think about this just a second. Is the earth going to be repopulated? When it's repopulated, will there be people on the earth who have not made, had a chance to make a choice to either accept Jesus or to reject him? They need that chance to exercise their freedom of choice. And of course, to be responsible for the decision they made. So, if you were to look in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, it says this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the mist and shut it and sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations any longer. But then you go down to Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on a broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now why is that really going on? Well, Hayes, I tend to think about these questions like a lawyer would. And I imagine a trial at the great white throne, and somebody brings up this as a defense. Now listen, God, this is not fair. You see, I inherited sin from my father. If I was Adam and I was in the garden, I would have never rebelled against you. He was living in a perfect place. He had everything he could possibly want. He got to talk to you and walk with you every night. And God's going to say, and here are three billion people who got to do the same thing, and yet they chose to rebel against me, and you would have too. You see? Answers the question. Mark. I'm just curious, why the the term, the names God and Magog, reappearing? Because they tend to be leaders in rebellion. And that involves a Muslim-type tradition. Now, am I up here saying, being hateful and saying, the Muslim religion is bad? Absolutely, I'm saying that, without question. It is as anti-God as you can find. And it's going to be interesting today because the pastor is preaching on Matthew chapter 7, including verse 15 where it talks about false prophets and knowing them by their fruit. I will be interested to see whether he brings up a prophet by the name of Muhammad and goes over some of his fruits, raping six-year-old girls, attacking caravans and killing everybody and plundering them. All the different, well, you know what Muhammad did. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing, hearing that. Now, the third event in this period of time is judgment of the Gentiles who survived the tribulation. We've already gone over that in Matthew 25, 31. But those Gentiles who were not believers and were not saved, they will be banished, but they won't be sent to the lake of fire. 
They'll be sent to Hades Sheol. Well, we'll talk about in a minute. But the ones who are saved, then he will judge in the same way he judged us in the Bema seat to give rewards. And there will be rewards for those. How many martyr crowns are going to be issued then, as we see, to those Gentiles? The fourth will be the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. Now, when I say Old Testament saints, I also include those in the tribulation. You say, well, wait, they weren't during the Old Testament. Yes, but they are part of the Jewish dispensation. They're part of the Jewish dispensation. Remember, the tribulation is the last seven years of the Jewish dispensation. And they belong in that dispensation. The main witness will not be the church. Church will be gone. It will be the, how many, Don? Witnesses? 144,000. They're all Jewish. 12,000 from each tribe. They're going to be turning the world upside down with their evangelistic fervor. Can you imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls unleashed on the world? Yeah. Now, it talks about this resurrection of the Old Testament believers in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, where it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. That's talking about not only the resurrection, but that judgment that will come, and the rewards. Now, notice some people have a problem. Many of those who sleep in the dust. Well, that's not saying all of them. Well, at this time, has there been any people that have died that will be resurrected? Yes, all of you. If you've died, you'll be, you won't be part of this resurrection. This is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, not the church. And so you see that. Now, what about the tribulation saints? Does Daniel say any? No, John does in Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they who sat on them, and judgment was given them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and would not receive the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you see all of those things going on. So that is the first four events that occurred during this 75-day period. Now let's talk about the fifth one. The fifth one is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now who's going to have, besides Jesus, the most prominent seat at that supper? You. If you have received Jesus as your Savior, you are the key part of the bride, and we will have a special place to sit at that table and at that supper. And... Some people want to say, oh, no, it occurred before then. Well, you look at Revelation 19.9. It says, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are true of God. This event occurs then, afterwards. Why? Because the father of the groom invites who he wants to the marriage supper of his son. Well, can you say, well, yeah, he's going to invite all of us. No. We're not going to get an invitation. We're the bride. We will be there. Well, who's he inviting? The Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. They haven't been resurrected yet before, so they couldn't be invited. Now they are, and they will be invited. And so you begin to see that that supper, man, 
Can you imagine what we're going to be able to eat? Now, I have to tell you that I thought I was eating well this morning when I had buttermilk sour cream waffles with a wild plum and maple syrup on them this morning and the bacon I had, but it doesn't compare. I know she's giving me grief. Why do you bring this up, Doug? Because I had a wonderful breakfast this morning. I'm feeling good. And, but what we're going to be eating at that supper doesn't compare to anything you've ever had before. It's going to be unbelievable. I don't know. Maybe Dewey has tasted a few things like that uh, because his wife is unbelievable when she gets in the kitchen. But for the rest of us, not going to. Now, the next action that we're going to see during this 75-day period is the setup of the Millennial Kingdom's government. In Revelation 26, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection, that is the resurrection of believers. Over these, the second death has no power, and they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the government will be set up. The next, the seventh, the restoration of the earth must be accomplished before the millennium begins. You say, what do you mean? The earth is going to be beat up torn up, destroyed. Now I'm going to go through things rather fast here, but I want you to hear these things. Let's, I went through Revelation yesterday and picked out the second seal is going to be world war. When he breaks the second seal, world war is going to break. Does the kind of war we fight, you know, there was a war, we used to fight war with spears and shields and swords and arrows and stones. We don't fight like that anymore. And when we fight now, does it destroy the earth? Absolutely. Does you remember we talked about horse, a blood flowing as high as a horse's bridle for 200 miles? What do you think caused that? So that's number one. When the sixth seal is broken, and this is the one I wanted you to see also about repentance. In Revelation 6, I want to read this to you, unlike the other ones. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Now, I don't believe John had a word for meteors. And I believe that's what it is. If a star fell, it would destroy the whole earth completely. It's a meteor. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll, and it rolled up, and every mountain and every island was moved out of their place. Now, wait a second. Every island was moved? What effect is that going to have? Every mountain is moved? What effect is that going to have? Now, if you keep reading this passage in Revelation chapter 6, and they'll say, they saw that this was the judgment of God, and they tried to hide themselves in the caves, but they did not repent. They knew who was doing this, but they refused to repent. Now, when the first trumpet judgment comes, a third of the earth's first vegetation is going to be burned. When the second trumpet judgment comes, a third of the sea becomes blood. When the third trumpet blows, a third of the earth's water is poisoned. When the fifth trumpet is sounded, what appears to be demonic losses are released on the earth to destroy men and everything there. When the second bold judgment is poured out, the entire sea becomes blood and all the sea creatures die. The third bold judgment, all the rivers become blood. The fourth bold judgment, the earth is scorched by the sun and everybody living on the earth is burned. Has severe sunburn and, and third degree burns. 
Though in the seventh bowl, a great earthquake completely destroys the cities of the earth. So all the cities will be destroyed. The mountains and islands disappear. Now think about that. The mountains and islands disappear. You can't see them anymore. There's no more mountains. There's no more islands. The earth will clearly need restoration. That's going to be done during this 75-day period before the millennial kingdom starts. Finally, there's a rededication of the temple. We talked about this last time, but uh, a lot of you sometimes have some questions, and I want to try and answer them this morning. If you remember, back in Daniel 12, 7, a few verses before this, Gabriel tells us how long it will be for a time, times, and half a time. And that word times is maod. And it's a word that God uses for signs, for His time designations and what's going on. In Leviticus chapter 23, He uses that same word to describe the feasts that Israel will have. You say, he's using maod to describe? No, he's using maod as the feast. The word feast there in, in Leviticus 23 is maod. And there were seven feasts, and I wanted to show them to you with a chart. They're easier to see. The start of, of the Hebrew calendar is up here in the month of Nisan. And in that first month, there's three feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Then you go down to the next one. How far? How long? 50 days to the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. It occurs right here. And it's set up from this first fruits, a certain period of time every year, 50 days. Then you come around here to the month of Tishri. On the first day of Tishri, remember it's lunar month, they have trouble sometimes determining how, when it happens to start with, but that's the Feast of Trumpets. Then the feast day of atonement and the type of tabernacles. Now you look up here. This is, if this is a sign, what happened on Passover? Jesus was killed. How long did he stay in the grave? For three days, which was during the feast of unleavened bread that year. And then first fruits, what happened? He rose from the dead. That was a perfect picture of what was going to happen. And did happen. What about Pentecost? Has that been fulfilled yet? Yes, it has. The Holy Spirit came down and filled men. They were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. They never had that before. Before, the Holy Spirit would be on someone, but never in someone. Every believer receives the down payment or earnest money deposit of the Holy Spirit, and He is indwelling you. Will He ever leave you? No, under no circumstances. Now, he may have to take you home, but he's never going to leave you. Has anything happened in relation to these three yet? And the answer is no. I'm convinced that the Feast of Trumpets will be the day on some year in the future that Jesus raptures his church. Number two, the Day of Atonement will be the day that Jesus comes back. The Day of Atonement, He's going to come back at the end of the tribulation period. On the Day of Atonement, the Day of Judgment. That's what Day of Atonement is. It's about judgment of sin. Tabernacles is, represents what? It is the Millennial Kingdom. Do you notice it doesn't start immediately after Day of Atonement? There's a little interval in there. Oh. Now, there has been a feast added 
to these seven. That's not in Leviticus 23. And that's Hanukkah. And that's what they call it. What are the real names for that in English? The Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication. Why are they called the Feast of Lights? Because to rededicate the temple, they had to burn these lamps for eight days, but they only had enough oil to do it for one day. But God intervened, and it burned for eight days. Now, the burning of those lights was the last part of rededicating the temple. There was an entire process that had to go through. Most preachers or teachers don't talk about that. We don't have time to really get into it today, but understand that it was just not the burning of the lights that rededicated the temple. There was a process. That process is going to have to go through again. Some people say, no, wait a second, Doug. He's not going to use that same temple. Maybe not. Maybe he's going to scrape it. But that spot has to be rededicated. Now, the question then comes up. Why would he pick 75 days of interval? From the Day of Atonement to Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication, how many days is it? 75 every year. Do you see? God does it. Some people don't like this, but I have a rule of interpretation in the Bible. And it's God never does anything for the heck of it. There's always a reason. The only question is, how many reasons? But there's a reason. It always fits. Now, sometimes you can't find it. And you say, there can't be a reason here. I've looked and looked. Just because you've looked doesn't mean there's not a reason. You just don't know yet. But you find out. I had no idea until I read Arnold that there was 75 days from the Day of Atonement to the Feast of Dedication. But it is. And it's important. No, actually, it wasn't Arnold who told me that. It was Andy Woods who told me that. But be that as it may, I want you to see that, and I want you to understand that. Now, some people say, well, you don't know the Feast of Dedication was really really a miracle. I mean, you know, it was in the book of First Maccabees. Now, you won't find the book of First Maccabees in your Bible. If you do find it in your Bible, you might think of getting rid of that Bible. Uh, if you want to talk to me more about that afterwards, I'll explain the reasons why. But the fact is, I believe now it was a miracle and it did happen. And the reason that it happened was because Jesus went to celebrate the Feast of Dedications recorded in John 10, 22-23 in that verse in your notes. Now, let's look at this final verse and unpack it before we finish today. Daniel 12, 13. But as for you, go your way to the end, and you will enter into rest and rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Now, all through this vision, when Gabriel was talking about, who was he talking about? Israel. Not just Daniel, Israel. Is he changed now and talking about Daniel? Is that you and your and you and your? Is that referring to Daniel or Israel? Well, if you look at it the English, you can't tell. We don't have a plural you. We don't say use guys, you know. Well, some people from New Jersey do. But, you know. In Hebrew, it will tell you, Hebrew, it will tell you that is masculine singular in each of those places. Now, there's not a really a word for you. It's attached to that verb go. And there's not really a you down here. It's attached to the, the word. But the verb is masculine singular. He's talking to Daniel now. So he's saying, as for you, Daniel, go your way. Number one, you're not going to be able to understand this. Your job is to write it. Not to understand it. You can't understand it yet. You don't have enough information. 
Go your way to the end. Let's look at that a second. What does that mean, to the end? The end of Daniel's life. What is he telling Daniel? You're going to die. Well, that's not news to most people. Everybody knows everybody's going to die. But what happens when you do die? You will enter into rest. What is he talking about? Talking about Hades Sheol. Because when Daniel dies, that's where he's going to go. In Luke, it talks about Hades Sheol, and there's two sections. Let's look at it in a chart because I think it will help us. If you see, this is a kind of complicated chart, and I understand that. But if you look at this blue part here, it's called paradise or Abraham's bosom. Over here, it's referred to kind of as hell, or a place for the wicked. Everyone who's a non-believer who dies goes there. They're waiting resurrection at the great white throne judgment. Everyone who goes here is the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. Well, let's say the Old Testament saints. They'll be resurrected, like we said, after the tribulation before the millennial kingdom. Believers in the church, though, don't go there. Because when they die, where do they go? Immediately into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? But that's where he's talking about Daniel go. It's a side of paradise. It's a place of rest. It's a, a place of like a holding, but a fabulous place. And some will say, oh, you mean the Catholics are right? They're put in, in some kind of purgatory? No, they're not right. And no, what anybody does here on earth is going to affect when someone comes out of there. Don't think that. Now, I want you to see that and how that works. That's what he's saying. But then what does he say will happen to Daniel? The next part of the verse, he's going to rise again. He will rise when that time comes. When his people are raised from the dead in this 75-day interval. And what will happen after that? And your allotted portion for the end of the age. He is going to receive his rewards. Now, do you think Daniel will be well rewarded. Yes, I think he will. But I thought, you know, Doug, maybe what we ought to do is take that passage and apply it to us. And I'm thinking the best way to do that, and I want you to see this idea that I think could help us in understanding that. I'm going to choose someone that I think would be a good example. And I'm going to use my friend, J. Frank Harris. Now, I haven't talked to him about this yet, but Frank is going to be the guy. But as for you, Frank, go your way to the end. Now, first thing, well, you're, you're saying that Frank's going to die. Aren't we at the end time? Frank's going to be raptured. Let me tell you, we live in a country that is going as fast as it possibly can in this direction. They hate Christians. They will do anything to eliminate Christians. They will tell us that Christians are full of hate. They are backward. They are unpatriotic. They are, in fact, domestic terrorists. During two presidents ago, and I'm not going to mention any names whatsoever, even, even say Hussein, but the fact is... There were military operations to deal with Christian terrorists practiced by our military. Now, 
all of us know that Frank is the kind of man who will stand up. He will pay any price, and he's not going to let evil go unspoken or unresponded to. And those kind of people will be killed. Maybe it's Frank. Maybe it's me. Uh, maybe it's Daniel. Maybe it's Mark. Maybe, maybe it's some of my other friends here. There's a good chance some of us won't be raptured because I think of the evil that is coming in our nation and it's coming quickly. Well, I don't want to say we won't be raptured, but we'll be raptured from the grave. We'll be one of the first to come up. Now, if that does happen to Frank, he will immediately go in the presence of Jesus and there he will rest until that rapture occurs. Then at the end of time, he will receive his portion. And Frank, I think, will be well rewarded as a man of courage who's willing to stand up for what's right. And we've seen that. Now, look at one of the things that's going to happen. In Revelation 19, 5-8, it says, And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, and all you his bondservants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, great multitude, many peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Those people are believers in the church age believers in heaven, preparing to mount white horses and to come down with Jesus for the final battle. That's who these people are. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made her ready. Made herself ready. How has she made herself ready? It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so we will be wearing that linen. If you look... Later in that couple verses down in Revelation, you will see those who are mounted with Jesus are wearing fine linen, white and clean. That's us. We will be coming back with him. Could it be that there will be some believers who will be indecently exposed when that time comes? Do we have any time to do about any time to change that? Yes, we do. We just need to be about it. What should we be doing? We should be sharing our faith. I want you to think about it from this perspective before we finish. Let's say that an angelic being came to you and said, you know, there's a scourge in your nation. It's a plague. You mean COVID? No, I don't mean COVID. I'm talking about a real scourge. I'm talking about cancer. And there's cancer of everything. And here I'm giving you this writing, and it tells how you can cure cancer, absolutely. What would you think about the person who says, you know, this is so precious. I'm going to take this home, put it in my safe, and guard it, not let anything happen to it. That would just be so wrong in so many ways. Or that person would say, you know what, I'm really in need of some funds. I will see that you are cured if you pay me $5 million. That would, uh, and I'm proud of you that you hadn't, but there were some other people if you didn't share that with the world, how horrible would you be? And yet, you have something better than that that you're keeping to yourself. Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, freedom from sin, and eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ, or well, eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, first in heaven, and finally in the new Jerusalem. As his bride, why aren't we telling someone?
or someone's. You know, God has plans for that. I can remember a time I was down at the University of Texas. I was working with Campus Crusade, and I had set up an appointment to, to share the gospel with a guy is in a dorm room in Jester. And I got there a little early, and I went down to the end of the hall, and I was praying. I looked up this guy's face, and so I could recognize him. And here comes this guy down the hall, and it's not the guy I'm going to talk to. But he goes into the room where I'm going to knock on the door. And he, I say, Lord, why are you doing that? I got to have somebody else in there when I'm sure I can't do that. That's too embarrassing. I mean, we're right there. You know, dorm rooms are small. And I said, you know, I made a deal. So I went and knocked on the door. They opened it. There was the guy on one side over here who came down the hall. And there's the guy I was going to meet. He was sitting on the bed on this side. So I sat down there with him. I went through a spiritual survey and then asked him if he wanted to hear the four spiritual laws. And his roommate said, you ought to say yes to that. I think you ought to hear it. And I said, be quiet over there, I thought. But I went through the four spiritual laws. I got to the point, I asked him, do you want to invite Jesus into your heart right now? And here again, the roommate, yeah, you ought to do that. And he said, yes, I do. And so I led him in that prayer and Jesus entered that man's heart. And then God spoke to me. And he said, what about him? I said, do you want to do that too? He said, yes, I've been waiting for you to ask me. I was saying, I don't want that guy there, God. God was saying, I want him there. He will work in you if you just give him the chance. I'm getting wound up now and we need to pray. But I want you to see that. This is so important. It means eternity for some people. Dear Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend here together. I thank you for the soul winners that you've given us in this class and how people are coming to know the Lord all the time by the ministry of some. But I pray that it won't be some, it will be all. Thank you for loving us the way you do now. Help us to understand what's going on. Help us to be able to share it with others. Help us to know that you are in control. Everything is going to happen down to the day that you have planned it. Give us the courage to be like Frank. Stand up for what's right and speak out. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.